Hi everybody, I'm Tim. I was in an extremely good mood uh, today in the morning, which is rare for me. Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm is coming back today. also football uh, but as I was uh, setting up this morning a sharp pain um, ignited through my butt down into my leg and I am in a lot of pain right now so <laughs> as I talk today uh, I may seem a little bit more grizzled than normal uh, I'm just trying to <laughs> get through this right now but I will try to be here with you as much as possible. And if I can do that, I hope you will try to be here with me as much as possible as well. We are kind of, um, we've gone through this sort of progression, whether we did it on purpose or not, from Advent to Christmas to uh, Epiphany, the first week of this month. And, you know, we've taken this kind of journey. We're talking about like prophets in Advent. And then we went to, when we were at Christmas, talked about this light that comes in the darkness. Um, during Epiphany, we celebrated the idea that with this light is made known to us, that we're able to see it. And all of this, I think, has sort of brought us to this point in which we kind of have to address this central idea, which is sort of bringing through all of it. This idea of this thing that's called revelation, right? And revelation is really at the heart of uh, Christian theological truth, religious truth. I think it's at the heart of most important truths in our lives. Um, so today, I'm going to sort of talk about that and also encapsulate sort of what we've talked about in the last couple months. So the basic idea of Revelation looks something like this, as plainly as I could think of to put it. There's something we don't know that needs to be shown to us, revealed to us. And this something isn't mere information. It is something much bigger than that. Revelation is, this is my uh, trademarked phrase that I just came up with. Revol <laughs> revelation is revolution. That's what revelation is. Revelation is revolution. Now, we like to get nerdy here with our etymology, as you might have known. And revelation is a weird one because it comes from the Greek apocalypsis. Um, it's not really a, a word for revelation itself, like as revelation in the Bible that much. And apocalypsis, so it means uncovering, as you might know. And then the Latin for apocalypsis became revelatio and so on, and we came to this. So basically the idea is that revelation is this, like apocalypse, it's um, uncovering something that's hidden. Right? This is really important, I think. It's revealing something that we can't see. It's often said that there are three revealed religions, uh, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and by revealed religions, they mean religions that need this kind of revelation in order for that to be, right? As opposed to say, uh, something that we could think of with our reason or uh, our own minds. I, I don't know, like new age stuff, I, you know, religions that people could like just come up with in their heads, right? These are revealed religions, divine, the divine must communicate it with us, right? And so uh, God in these stories of these religions, right, or some divine being holds this truth and chooses to make it known. And in these stories, it, it often goes like this, right? It's sort of selective. It's not like um, 
God like does like air painting in the sky and it's just there all the time. Like often it's told to somebody in a weird and unusual circumstance, right? Like a mountain, a burning bush, uh, starving in the desert, stuff like that, right? Usually this receiver is a man, as we see in most stories. Though I do think it's worth mentioning that some of the most important revelations in the Bible actually occurred to women. Um, for example, the first encounter with a risen Christ, right, was told to women, and they were told, go tell others. In any case, those individuals, they experience this revelatory thing, and then they uh, share this experience, right? They tell stories about it. They testify it about it. They write it down into sacred text. Um, they share it with their homies, right? And thus, revelation is kind of disseminated and made possible for others. Sort of that's, you can sort of draw this line down. I want to um, emphasize a, a little point that um, I think is really vital, but it's hard for me to explain. It's a little kind of mystical and strange in a way. So the sharing of Revelation is not like reading a history book, right? You don't like open it up and it says, so it's this thing happened. You're like, oh, it happened, right? And Revelation to me is more like an event. It's like saying, oh, that happened to me. Right? And in this way, it's also always perpetuating itself and made new as a new experience. So think of it this way. There's no, you know, we think of like the person who received a revelation, shares it, people hear it, they get it, right? They get second hand, third hand, millionth hand or whatever. When it comes to true revelation, I think uh, when one experiences it, it's as if they were the first one to get it too. Right? It's as if they were on that mountain, is that that angel came and talked to them, right? And it's always occurring in us in this way. Uh, revelation spreads, but again, it's happening again and again and again each time. Does this make sense? You feel me on this? I couldn't think of a good metaphor for you, and I think that part of the reason is that it's hard, you can't capture it that easily in that way. You know, I, talked to, I was thinking about like sports and stuff. Anyway, but it's a hard concept, but um, something really important to the idea of Revelation. So, if you read the Bible, the New Testament in particular, you find that people are often not very open to uh, believing stuff. You might resonate with this. Um, it doesn't really work, right, that you just like tell somebody, hey, this thing is true, and they're like, oh, yes, right? Uh, so, you know, supernatural things are one way that uh, people kind of try to give proof that this stuff was real, right? Like in our passage today, this dove comes down, and in other passages you see Jesus like performing miracles and stuff, and people are like, wow, and then they're like, oh, this revelation must be true. I wish I could do that stuff. I feel like it would make my job at least a little bit easier. At some point in my life, I tried to learn magic. <laughs> Um, and please don't laugh at this because it's hurtful, but I tried to learn magic to impress women. <laughs> I mean, look, and then, you know, yeah, a lot of women told me, like, uh, that's really dumb. Don't do that. But I was like, okay, it's dumb if I do something dumb, but, like, if I do some, like, David Blaine shit, like, you will be impressed. <laughs> anyway, it didn't go anywhere. It's really hard. Magic is, I'm very... A lot of credit to magicians. But even with 
uh, miracles and signs and all these things, some people still don't believe, right? Why, why is that? Is that my phone? Why is that? Why do some people not believe? And in our uh, modern world, I think it's sort of reversed. Why does anyone believe any of this religious stuff anyway? So a lot of people have spilled gallons of ink trying to answer this question. Why do some people get it and some people don't get it? Right. I think there's a, something really interesting to think about there. I mean, Jesus talks about it in sort of parables, right? Uh, he says, like, let those who have ears hear. It's sort of telling us in some way that there's some sort of way that some get it and some don't, but it has to do with capacity, ability, need maybe, right? A little side tangent for you I'm going to do. Uh, you guys have heard of predestination, this idea? So my guess is most of us are kind of hate this idea. Um, it's particularly an affront to our modern values of agency and freedom, for example. Um, and I've always long felt that way. But someone explained it to me this way that it was like the best way it can make sense. Um, not that we need to make it make sense, but I think it's just interesting. That predestination is sort of trying to answer this question. Why is it that you tell somebody something and you get it and then the person next to you is like, that's insane, right? It must be that God chose this person and not this person. Is that helpful? I don't know. I thought it was funny or interesting at least. Anyway, the main reason I think that Revelation for me hits or doesn't hit depending on the person, is simply that uh, it's so big that some people can't take it, right? Again, we're not talking about knowledge. We're not talking about like learning about photosynthesis or something like this. We're also not talking about emotional connections to stuff, like I heard this song or I watched this movie and I thought it was really good. We are talking about total revolution of the mind, spirit, and heart, right? I'll say it again, revelations are about revolutions, right? As we can see in our political moment right now, changing the status quo is a lot harder than we might have realized, right? You would think in this year, there wouldn't have to be fear of certain reelection but here we are, right? The status quo finds its way to just lock in, right? Revolutionaries to me are people who carry a deep sense of, con of discontent, right? There's for revolutionary people a screaming feeling that the world, that the world doesn't have to look the way that it does, right? Or that the world in some way is not enough. And revelation, I think, especially in, religi in a religious sense, for religious people, it turns things so upside down, and only certain people in certain situations actually want that thing, actually want that to happen. If you were here for our Christmas service, you might remember I talked about this, um, well, we were talking about like sort of light scattering darkness, changing our view in a profound way, and I used this example of racism, right? This idea that when we uh, see truth, when the light hits us, it's not like seeing that racism is just real. We're like, oh yeah, racism exists. 
is to fundamentally alter the way you see the world, right? It's to begin to see the very structures of racism deeply embedded everywhere, right? You literally will walk out your door and look at the world differently when this revelation comes to you, right? You guys get what I'm saying? And this is, you know, just like we've discussed with the uh, biblical revelation, this revelation comes to us through stories, through uh, testimonies, through a lot of songs, right? There is a tradition coming down, offering it. And yet, again, we also know a lot of people in our lives who hear those same stories. Maybe they even sing the songs, but they don't really see it, right? The darkness is still there. The veil remains. It has not been revealed and uncovered for them. Right? I don't know why this is the case. You know, at least with the racism thing, I would say, like, I think for a lot of people, it's the being self-implicated part that really prevents them from seeing. Um, I've learned in my life that nothing makes white people more mad than calling them racist. I try to do it as many times as I can. <laughs> right? I'm just kidding. But, you know, being self-implicated to me, there's no shame in that. Right? The truth comes for all of us at some point, and, I, and that's all right, right. I can stand up here and say that I am a racist in a lot of ways, too. So when we do encounter this truth, when we encounter this proclamation of truth that rings false, what do we do? What do you do when you encounter someone who has a revelation different than yours? What do you encounter when you, what do you do when you encounter someone who thinks very differently than you? Right? To you it sounds like God, to other people it sounds like the devil. How do we know which one it is? Right? And religious, religious stuff is full of these kinds of like fights. It happens, it's happened all the time. Heretics and blasphemers and stories in the Bible of people being like, God said this, no, God meant this, and blah, blah, right? And some of us might have experienced this very personally about trying to figure out what is actually real, what's coming from God, what is true, right? We've asked God for an answer, and we get this sense, but we don't know if we should trust it or believe it, right? And from the writers of early Christianity to the scholastic era, medieval times, not the thing, but like the actual medieval times, uh, to the modern era, the Enlightenment, postmodernism, to new and radically inclusive theologies of, of the present day, liberation, feminist, queer theologies, all these things, debating how we know what God is really saying to us. And as far as I can see, I'm not studying this intensely, but there are sort of four general ways that people have argued that we should make these decisions. The Bible, Sure, many of us have heard that one. Tradition, uh, reason, and our experience. Right? And some lean heavily into one or the other. There's some combination of the two. I think uh, we can say pretty, we can say pretty clearly that we're in an age right now where experience is sort of reigns supreme, right? Sacred texts are not as sacred as they once were, and tradition in which you know, authorities like priests and so forth like tell you what to believe. I mean, you guys don't really 
care what I think, right? In that way, it's, we're not living in that time anymore. And um, even with reason, we see its limits to some extent. Experience, we are in a moment where it's the experience of our individual selves that has sort of the most weight. And it, that's brought an immense amount of positive change, I would say, in our society as people have told really hard truths about their experiences. But I think if we're honest, we can also see the ways that that is destructive or that rely, what I mean is relying on experience alone can be destructive for us as well. Right? We, so many of us have family members and friends who espouse truths and ways of seeing the world that are so contradictory to ours that we are just like, what the fuck, right? We don't know. Their experiences are different than ours. And therefore, it is vital for us to ask ourselves, even if the, ob the answer might seem obvious to you, why am I right and why are they wrong? What makes my experience the right one and theirs the wrong one, right? There's something fundamental and basic about this question about being human, right? How do we know what to believe? Who is telling the truth? As you might have guessed, we're not the kind of place where I answer those kinds of questions. I just like throw them out there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'll try my best. Our passage today um, is oddly worded as it is. I think contains a basic truth about the nature of Christian revelation, right? It looks like this. John the Baptist is looking for something. And he's looking for God. And God tells him, here's how you're going to find me. Here's a sign. I'm coming. And you will know who I am when this thing happens. Right? It's a sort of basic premise of the story. Looking for Jesus, the dove comes down, you know it's me, that's the sign, there you go. And what I want to highlight in this story is that there's an idea here of verifiability, of verifiable signs. Right? When we are um, struck by revelation, I would say that verif verification is part of how we experience it. For John the Baptist, for all of us, when truth is revealed, it must also be a truth that we actually see. Does that make sense? And this actually made me think of like, you know, people who uh, throughout history have like claimed that they knew the date of the end of the world. Fortunately or unfortunately, maybe, they've always been wrong. But uh, I've noticed that this was like the hot thing to do in like the 90s and the 2000s-ish, but we haven't... I don't remember last time I've seen this in the news, so I thought maybe we could think about starting that for like the sewing team or something, just to get some some publicity out there, right? right? So, verification. Now, it also turns out, as you're probably well aware, that verification is very difficult to do, right? We can't exactly like grow cells in a dish and know this stuff so easily. Right. For example, who the hell knows what happens when you die? I don't know. That was a pun, by the way. Thanks. Right? And so because we can't get that verification like this, there's an aspect of trust and waiting involved as well in Revelation. Right? There are stories in the New Testament where like, people think Jesus is the Messiah. The revelation is shown to them, and they're like super hyped. And then by the second time, Jesus is like, I'm not going to overthrow this government. They like leave, right? They're like, I'm done. They walk away. They cannot wait, right? They did not trust. And why should we trust? Why should we wait? If we go back to the meaning of Revelation, uh, 
remember this, right? It says something is uncovered that is hidden from us, right? which also means that we must admit a sort of fundamental ignorance or a lack of knowing on our part. I was at the Adler Planetarium this last week with myself and about like 10 other clergy and listened to a lecture by an astrophysicist for like an hour. And if you've ever noticed astrophysicists, like every single one of them are really enthusiastic. <laughs> like what's up with that? It's like you have to be like hyped in order to study this stuff. She was the rare person whose enthusiasm brought me down. But anyway, that's different. <laughs> but she did say this one thing I really liked, right? She said, um, when it comes to exploring the cosmos, we must always remember that there will always be much more we don't know than we do. It's a kind of statement of humility that I think the best scientists we encounter will confess to us, and the worst ones try to hide in a way. Right? And it is from this fundamental acceptance of this not knowing, this sort of ignorance, that I think comes an ability to wait and see. right? Because we don't know. So we keep on the lookout. We keep wondering. We keep hoping. The last thing I would say is this. Um, I think the Christian tradition actually does give us a pretty good framework for judging whether or not a revelation is sort of true, right? Which is if we accept the idea that revelation is never separated from salvation. I don't mean salvation in the way of like, you're saved and you're going to heaven, right? I've never seen that movie, by the way, but I heard it's good, right? I don't mean it in that way, right? I don't mean it. Um, in a lot of the ways that our culture often uses it. By salvation, I mean really um, being saved from all the things that death represents to us, from separation and disconnection, from destruction of our relationships and our bodies, right? Or the triumph of evil, the loss of meaning in our lives. And again, I don't mean this in a just sort of philosophical way. This is very concrete and real, right? Salvation from evil in all its forms. Revelation is only true when it brings this kind of salvation. In other words, what good is a revolution that is not about concrete things for people in concrete situations? And what good is a revolution that it doesn't show itself to bring life and instead brings death? <coughs> Revelations, they don't just change our minds, but they should change the world in a way, right? And by this ability, we can judge the veracity of its truth. Does your truth save you? Does it save others? Does it save this world? That's the question I want to ask here when we figure out what to believe. So, as I end, I certainly haven't, you know, uh, covered every possible thing that comes with this topic. It's so vast that I could probably talk about it every week for the rest of the year and not get to all of it. But really today is sort of a starting point. And over the next few months through uh, February and Lent and all the way until Easter, we're sort of going to take some time to talk about truth and change, about what it means when we say the truth sets us free, what uh, it means to risk one's self for the better, in that old Christian way, that old phrase to lose one's life to gain it, 
But all of that, I think, starts with us honestly asking ourselves these questions, these two fundamental questions. Does your truth save you? Does it save others? As a community, over these next few months, let us be courageous together in asking that question and finding out. Amen.